We are at the final Sunday of the sermon series, Who is Jesus? Next Sunday we'll begin uh, learning more about the Apostle Paul. Before I focus on today's text from John, I ask your indulgence as I reminisce for a few moments. The last time I was scheduled to preach was March 15, 2020. Some immediately caught that connection. That was the first Sunday after the world shut down, and we all tried to find our way through the coronavirus. Needless to say, I did not preach that Sunday, and if I'm honest, I did not really prepare much, because I kind of knew that there were some clues that we would not be meeting together. And I'm fully aware that we're still trying to make our choices to navigate through this, regarding coronavirus, and we'll hopefully continue to heal and recover from the effects of our shared experience. In preparing my thoughts, I also was pondering the realities of the past two years of my life. In August 2020, I closed the counseling office that I'd been a part of for 25 years and opened my own office here in Canton, and my commute went from 35 minutes to two minutes. I also appreciated your thoughts and prayers as I had both knees replaced and went through therapy in November and December of 2020. Aside from the pandemic, my plans for 2020 were pretty much, they went as followed. However, what wasn't a part of my plan was in January 2021 having a cancer diagnosis, which was followed by a lumpectomy and four chemotherapy treatments, and 33 radiation treatments, and 14 chemoimmunotherapy treatments, plus three heart mug scans and three echocardiograms. But I have a whole new head of hair, <laughs> as well as the privilege of having an oral medication for the next five years, and I get to see my oncologist and cardiologist on a regular basis. I'm very happy to say that, barring any new information, I had my last chemoimmunotherapy treatment this past Friday. Thank you. <laughs> Part of the tradition at Altman Hospital is at your last treatment, the nurses line up on the hallway and you ring a bell and you leave. I was reluctant to kind of have attention that way, but in talking with Lorne about it, he mentioned, but persons who are still getting their treatments and their families, they need to be reminded there's a last treatment day. And I would add for the staff, the, the nurses and staff there, they need to have hope that there are last treatment days. I understand that the need to experience hope is important for all of us. I acknowledge I was a little teary-eyed as I left the hospital on Friday. Though I might share a few more of my thoughts in a sermon in summer, but my connection today to today's text is to embrace the belief that Jesus entered my closed door, the closed door of my life, and stood with me and said, peace be with you. When we encounter Jesus this way, it affects our faith, both in terms of what we believe and in whom and in what we trust. In the sermon series, Who is Jesus? We've traveled through the Gospel of John looking at Jesus' first miracle at the wedding of Cana and his cleansing the temple. We looked at his conversation with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. We've pondered the stories of Jesus healing people, including the man born blind, and showing himself as the bread of life, the living water, and the good shepherd. 
During Lent, we've looked at Jesus raising Lazarus, washing his disciples' feet, and being denied by Peter at his arrest. In more recent weeks, we've focused on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, bringing in God's kingdom. We've looked at his trial before Pilate and heard words describing his excruciating death on the cross. And last Sunday on Easter, we were able to celebrate his resurrection and ponder the reality of new life. In John 20, we read of how several of Jesus' disciples came to understand and believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Simon, Peter, and John believed when they saw the strips of linen lying in the tomb in the folded burial cloth which Jesus had been wrapped. And it was laying there, but there was no Jesus. This, this was enough for them to believe, even though they didn't understand all the implications of what that meant. Mary Magdalene believed when she stayed at the tomb and had a conversation with what she thought was the gardener. But when Jesus said to her, Mary, she believed that Jesus had risen. Today's scripture from John 20 describes several more of the appearances after his resurrection. I will read again John 20, 19 to 25. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. And he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. As Sarah alluded, I think Thomas has gotten a bad rap or a bad reputation based on this scripture. I don't know if it was for you, but the song phrase that readily comes to mind is, Don't be a doubting Thomas, trust only on his promise. Why worry, 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 worry when you can pray? Now, obviously, I'm not saying don't pray instead of worrying. But I do get that Thomas needed to physically see Jesus, if not to touch his hands and his side. It makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know if it's the thinking, sensing part of my personality, the bias that I have, but I can understand why he needed to see for himself, to have that own experience himself. My sermon title, if you caught it, was called Being an Artful Doubter. That thought comes from one of Charles Dickens' characters in Oliver Twist, the Artful Dodger. As I understand it, this character was very skillful at pickpocketing. And he had cunning in it. He had very good skills in that. And I'm suggesting that we hone our skills in our dealing with our doubts and choose to openly examine what it is believe, what we believe, and in whom we trust. Our beliefs and our trust are both important parts of our faith. 
In the same way that it doesn't take much creativity to be critical, it doesn't take much effort to have doubts. But it is working through our criticisms and are bringing the doubts to life out in the open air that we have more room to understand them, if not change them, rather than being ashamed of them or cursing them. I've appreciated several quotes I read in a recent Reader's Digest. One was from Tim McGraw, the theologian. <laughs> from Tim McGraw, who stated in an interview, blind faith is not true faith. Asking questions and constantly dissecting faith while still having faith, that re represents a truer faith. I think we sometimes have the idea that if we have questions or doubts, then we don't have faith, as if it's an either-or scenario. It's not as if we only have doubts or faith. Rather, I do think there's an interplay between these two dynamics. If you recall Maddie, as I interpreted it when she preached, talked about the interplay between what we're tempted to believe and truth. She noted, at times it's hard to hear the truth, harder to believe the truth, and harder to still live out the truth. Celia, in preaching on Jesus' crucifixion on the cross and death, noted the interplay between darkness and hope. A more complete understanding of one can lead to a better understanding of the other. It's important to recognize that both are present and relevant. As we better understand falsehood or confusion, we increase our understanding of truth. As we un better understand darkness, we increase our understanding of hope. As we better understand doubts, we understand, increase our understanding of faith. In this passage in John 20, we're not given a lot of information of what's behind Thomas's doubts. Earlier in the Gospel of John, he notes Thomas' Thomas response when Jesus told the disciples that Lazarus had fallen asleep and his plan was to go wake him up. When the disciples misunderstood, Jesus stated, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. And in John 14, after Jesus told the disciples he was going to prepare a heavenly home, and one day his followers would join him there, Thomas's response was, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? I don't want to unfairly infer that much about Thomas, but his responses show a bit of confusion. He was confused about what he was hearing and experiencing, and I think gave confusing responses. I do gather, though, that he was trying to understand what Jesus was meaning in his actions and in his words, but he didn't catch all of the nuances. So I don't find it shocking that when disciples told Thomas of their experience of seeing Jesus after his death, he wanted a little more proof than their words. He wanted to see the marks in Jesus' hands, if not touch them. He also wanted to put his hand on the side where the spear pierced him after his death. And as I said before, I get it. He wanted to see and touch in order to believe. However, I want to emphasize that wasn't the end of the story. John 20, 26 to 28. A week later, his disciples were in the home again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
And he said to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. I believe Jesus knew of Thomas' doubts. And he also wanted to have the opportunity for Thomas to believe. He again came into the room of the locked doors and said, peace be with you. He invited invited Thomas to touch his resurrected body. He didn't berate Thomas or chastise him for his doubts. Thomas then had his aha moment, like Simon Peter and Mary Magdalene had already experienced. He had that moment when the thoughts and the feelings come together, and it makes a bit more sense. The doubts were answered and faith followed. They all had their own spiritual experience before they can embrace the reality of Jesus' miraculous resurrection. We as disciples, who are also human beings, have our moments of confusion and misunderstanding. These doubts can come from many places, from an unexpected medical diagnosis or death of a loved one, from the pain that tensions in relationships can bring, from not having our daily needs met, from any loss that leaves us confused, hurt, and angry, or from a confusing passage of scripture that just doesn't make sense to us. These doubts may be about Jesus and whether he's present with us or whether what we've been told about the resurrection is really true. We may also come to doubt whether God's people, the church, are real and whether others truly care about us. We may also come to doubt that those closest to us are really on our side and truly care about us. These doubts can also lead us to be critical, to push others away, to put up boundaries of protection, thinking it will keep us from being hurt again. My encouragement is that whatever these doubts are, or to whom or what they are about, to bring them to the light of day. If I hadn't had doubts throughout my life, I would not be the person I am, the critical thinker I choose to be. The question is, where do the doubts lead you? To despair or to enlightenment? I encourage you to share your doubts with a trusted friend. Wrestle them within your thoughts and in your prayers. Try to become aware of what's holding you back from believing or trusting. It's also important to address the fears that are also coming with the questions. Sometimes the fears keep us from questioning in the first place, or the fear can keep us from embracing what we've come to believe and trust. A second quote I recently read was stated by Amanda Gorman, who's rapidly becoming one of my favorite poets. She wrote a guest essay in the New York Times sharing why she almost didn't read her poem at the last presidential inauguration. She knew that there were those who were not comfortable with what she was stating or even her presence there. She feared for her physical safety. She also stated she feared failing her people and her poetry. She talked with friends and family about whether to take the risk, and after choosing to participate in spite of the fear, in this essay she stated, Before the time the sun rose, I knew one thing for sure. I was going to be the 2021 inaugural poet. I can't say I was completely confident in my choice, but I was completely committed to it. 
I'm a firm believer that often terror is trying to tell us of a force far greater than despair. In this way, I look at fear not as cowardice, but as a call forward, a summons to fight for what we hold dear. And now more than ever, we have every right to be affected, afflicted, affronted. If you're alive, you're afraid. If you're not afraid, then you're not paying attention. The only thing we have to fear is having no fear itself. Having no feeling on behalf of whom and what we've lost, whom and what we love. It's important for us to tell our stories, to release the shame-filled and secret parts of ourself. I think this is part of the function of God at work time. It's not just about to share our prayer requests or our praises, but for us as a community to hold each other's stories and with it the fear and pain of life, to bring our doubts to the light of day and to wrestle with them together. We understandably want signs of God's presence or Jesus' resurrection power. Sometimes those signs come in very clear ways. Other times we're left to have faith in their hope or their reality. I often say to my clients in talking about relationships that when trust is lost, it's important for the person whose action caused the loss of trust to act in ways which are worthy of building trust and for the other person to trust even though it's hard as long as the other person is acting worthy of trust. I bring this expectation to the resurrection story. Many characters in the Easter resurrection stories were trust challenged for valid reasons, but that didn't stop them from moving forward. Jesus has proven himself worthy of our trust, but it's then left for us to trust even though at times it may be difficult. I conclude by reading again Jesus' words upon Thomas' declaration that he recognized Jesus as the Lord and God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and, and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in his book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Peace be with you.